Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about the aftermath, a decade on of the housing crisis. Yeah, the stock market's up, unemployment's at an all-time low, but home ownership remains at a low point. Why? Where'd all that wealth go? It's the residue of the Great Recession of 2008, when 8 million Americans lost their homes. Today, our guest is Aaron Glantz. He's an award-winning investigative reporter, a Pulitzer finalist, and an author of the new book, Homewreckers, How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnets, Crooked Banks, and Vulture Capitalists suckered millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. Yeah, it's a hell of a, of a subtitle there. And a lot of these homewreckers are connected to President Trump. Aaron explains why. Aaron Glantz, welcome to It's All Political. I would say welcome to the city of San Francisco, but you know, I do. I do. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Let's let's start before we launch in this with a few facts that kind of help shape your book and frame your book. And uh, now we know in California, probably more than anywhere else, that your home is your largest asset, your largest source of wealth for those of us uh, fortunate enough to own one in this market. In 2000, two-thirds of Americans owned a home but by 2016, after this our housing meltdown, that dropped to its lowest level in 50 years. And why that's important, there's a huge wealth gap between people who own a home and people who rent. People who own a home have a net worth of $200,000 and renters have one that's around $2,000. And the home ownership rates decline most between among people of color and the gap in home ownership rates between blacks and whites are now somewhere where it was during the Jim Crow era. So the story, we know that 8 million Americans lost their homes during the, the Great Recession, the housing meltdown. But your book probes the question, what happened next and what happened to all that wealth? Where did it all go? It, it went into the hands of a very small group of venture capitalists, uh, who I call vulture capitalists, mm -hmm. who all happened... Uh, to turn out to be very close to President Donald Trump. You know, I didn't set out to write an anti-Trump book. Uh, a lot of this happened during the Obama years. Yes. Um, but uh, when Donald Trump started running for president in 2016 with his populist message uh, talking about how the economy was broken for everyday Americans, and he surrounded himself with people like Steve Mnuchin and Tom Barrick and Steve Schwartzman and Wilbur Ross, these are all the same guys who profited off of a historic widening of the wealth gap in America. So let's let's take a couple steps back here. The uh, massive foreclosures. How did someone like tell us about Steve Mnuchin? He before he became our Treasury Secretary, he was a big Wall Street titan. And uh, how did he come into possession? of these homes. Well, I would first say that he wasn't really a Wall Street titan so much as he was the son of a Wall Street That's, titan. This is true. <laughs> you know, his father, Robert Mnuchin, was a really big deal at Goldman Sachs. And Steve Mnuchin was just another guy who worked at Goldman Sachs. Although I do note- I the, classify him as a titan. I, I have a loose definition. Of well, titan, I mean, so it okay. is true that <laughs> at the time the story starts, Steve Mnuchin did own a two-story apartment on Park Avenue, which which may put him a little bit ahead of both you and me. I think that's together, probably. But in the world of Goldman Sachs and Wall Street, he was really not a titan. And, and this is important because he wanted to become one. 
right? And so he's sitting in his office in Midtown Manhattan watching footage on CNBC of a bank run in Pasadena, California. Most uh, of your listeners uh, probably vaguely remember the collapse of IndyMac Bank. This was one of the worst banks of the housing bubble. It pioneered the so-called ninja loan, which stood for no income, no job, no assets, no problem. We'll yeah. give you the loan anyway. Yeah. Also, uh, reverse mortgages where you already own the house and then the bank gives you some money. You never have to pay it back. But instead of the bank balance going down over time, interest and fees compound every single month. And when you die, the bank takes the house. Uh so when the housing bubble burst, this bank failed and there was a literal run on the bank. There were people pushing and shoving outside the bank's headquarters in 90 degree heat. It was on national television. Most people thought this was a disaster. The FDIC said it would lose about $10 billion. And Steve Mnuchin is watching this. Is This is great news. I am going to get a hold of this bank and make a ton of money. And that's where the story starts. How did he go about doing that? And, and how did he get help from the government? Well. The first thing he had to do was go get a group of investors. This is another reason why it's important that he wasn't like super duper duper rich, only super rich himself at that time. So he goes to his friends, including George Soros, uh, Michael Dell of Dell Computer, John Paulson, uh, the Wall Street guy. They put together a group to bid on this bank. And as it turns out, they're the only people who wanted this disaster of a bank. Uh, so the government makes a deal with them. Uh, they pay the government nothing for this failed bank. In exchange, the government agrees to pay them up to 90% of their losses if they foreclose on people. So not only the value of the loan uh, that they might lose, but also uh, any costs that they incur, like their attorney's fees, appraisal costs, inspection costs, all of that, uh, the government is going to pick up at about 90%, up to 90%. So, so we, we end up paying his group over a billion dollars as they foreclose on 137,000 people, including 23,000 seniors. Why would the government make that offer? The government was basically saying, and they even Sheila Bear, who was the head of the FDIC at the time, she even said that to me recently when I was writing the book, they, it was the best deal that we could get, right? There was nobody else who wanted this piece of crap bank. And so our losses would have been even greater if we hadn't made this sweet deal. The problem is, is that it aligned all the incentives in favor of foreclosure, right? So normally, if you were a bank, you wouldn't want to foreclose on a family because you would take a hit. So Steve Mnuchin and his group could go ahead, foreclose on families over and over and over again, and we would pick up his losses. Meantime, if he made money doing something else, like investing in movies, for example, or uh, investing in fracking, which is another thing which that he his did, bank both did. of those things. Yeah, that, uh, that he could keep that money, right? Uh, but if he lost money foreclosing on people, uh, we would pick it up. So then we basically gave him a financial incentive to foreclose. So what happened to these people that you have some, some great stories in the book uh, very tragic stories about people who uh, were foreclosed on. They got lost in the in the in the Byzantine maze of of trying to get their homes back. Um, some they basically these homes did not go back on the market. They became rental properties. Correct. The main family that I write about in this book is Sandy Jolly's family. Sandy uh, 
her family lived in this 1500 square foot house in Thousand Oaks, California. Her father worked for the water department. Her mother worked for a company that printed payroll checks. Uh, they bought their house for under $90,000 back in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And when they got old, they're sitting at home watching TV and they see an ad on TV for one of these reverse mortgages. It's 2005. Housing bubble is in full swing. Dick picks up the phone. Her father dials the number. Salesman comes to her door. He signs basically away the house. And uh, three weeks later, he dies. So Sandy, the daughter, is going through his affairs, trying to piece things together, and notices this reverse mortgage. She calls the bank. She offers to give the money back. The bank says, oh, well, we're, we'll be happy to cancel the loan, but only if you give us the money we gave you plus $20,000 in interest and fees that we have already assessed in these first few weeks. Oh, my God. And so, uh, you know, she just starts this multi-year fight with them. And in the middle of this fight, the bank fails, right? Steve Mnuchin takes it over. And in this moment, Sandy feels like, oh, there's a new ownership group in this bank. Maybe there'll be people that I can deal with. But as I mentioned, the bank had no incentive to deal with her. So she fights, she fights, she fights. In 2011, she finally loses the house to foreclosure. And then eventually the house is put on the auction block. So she goes to the auction. This is incredible where she fight, fight, fight every step of the way. Fights for over 10 years, which is what made her such a good character Mm -hmm. for this book. Mm -hmm. And she goes to the auction. She goes to every single person who's going to bid on her family house. And she's going to try to convince them all not to buy the house. And one by one, the bidders at the courthouse in Ventura are like, oh, you know what? We'll bid on some other house that's up for bid. And then there's this one person who shows up. Didn't she pass out flyers too? Yeah, these 54 bullet points of things that she said were wrong with the house. I mean, this is a, she's a very litigious woman. You know, she thought she had been wronged and she was going to throw the whole kitchen sink, right, at trying to keep this house. And so she's trying to convince people, basically, if you buy this house, I'm going to be a problem for you too. And the one person, actually there are two people, but the person who ended up buying this house was this woman. She arrived with a little desk, portable desk and a Bluetooth headset and, uh, and she was just not going to talk to Sandy at all. And she ends up buying this house for $330,000. Mm. Um, and uh, and Sandy, you know, she has nothing, didn't know what to do. Um, but anyway, her key still works. So she drives back home, right? And uh, the next day, somebody comes to her door and he says, I am the representative of the property owner, the new property owner. Uh, we are Colfin AI California 5 LLC. That's who owns the house now. Colfin AI California 5 LLC would like you to stay in this home as our tenant. And so Sandy uh, ends up paying over the next 18 months more than $40,000 in rent to rent a house that her parents had bought for under $90,000 back in the 80s. And the investor that was behind that woman who was bidding at the courthouse turns out to be Tom Barrick, who is this Southern California private equity guy who is Donald Trump's best friend, who planned uh, the Trump inauguration uh, and uh, introduced Ivanka at the Republican National Convention. And this house in Thousand Oaks, Sandy's house, is one of more than 30,000 homes that his company buys uh, during the course of the Great Recession. So what, when, they, when these guys buy these homes, do they 
come back onto the market as for sale or do they stay in permanent rental? Because you have some some great quotes from Mnuchin there. They said, no, this these are rentals for, for infinity. Right? Yeah, Barrick. Barrick is the I'm one. Sorry, he Barrick. says, okay. yeah, Tom Barrick says, uh, he's asked by Bloomberg, how long are you going to own these homes? And he says, for infinity. Um, of course, Barrick, you know, these people are flippers, right? They're They're not landlords in the traditional sense of wanting to own property for a long time. They're private equity guys and they want to go into and out of an entire business in a few years. So, um, you know, Sears, Toys R Us, America's housing stock, right? To them, it's all the same. And so, uh, so Barrick goes in, he buys these 30,000 homes. In 2017, I do a story on his rental empire, including slum conditions in Los Angeles and Atlanta and many of his properties. He quits the company. He cashes out, making hundreds of millions of dollars on his investment. But the homes stay in this corporate hands, right? They don't exit and come back on the market so that you or I or anyone else could buy them. They are continue to be traded as a commodity. Right. I mean, now... Uh, now these homes that I'm talking about are part of this other company called Invitation Homes is the name of it. And they own more than 80,000 homes across uh, more than a dozen states from Seattle to Miami. Um, and California is their largest market. You may, it's several times in the book, you, you draw the parallel to uh, the times after uh, the Great Depression, uh, post-war, where uh, you knew your banker. Um, you knew if you took out a loan, you knew the person was giving you the loan, you paid back the loan, and, and that was a way to build home ownership. That is no longer the case, as you, as you point out. That you're, these companies are, are shell companies. You, uh, we, we now have this industry, and most people listening will be aware of this, where your loans were bought and sold and traded. And uh, you know maybe it's the moment, the very moment that you get a loan from a bank, it's going to turn around and sell it to someone else, right? Uh, but Another reason I brought draw this uh, uh, this connection with the Great Depression is that during the Great Depression, the government was given many of the same bad options that it did under Presidents Bush and Obama, uh, where the whole country was in a disastrous situation. There were banks failing, just like IndyMac, right? And the actually under Herbert Hoover, uh, what the government did was bail out the banks, and that didn't work very well. And we kept going into a deeper and deeper depression. So Roosevelt comes in, and in 1933, he starts the Homeowners Loan Corporation, right? A government-run bank. And it goes and it refinances one out of every five mortgages in urban America. It saves a million homes. Uh, it basically invents the 30-year fixed mortgage that we have today. Before that, there were all of these junk products that banks would offer. But, but it comes in and says, you know what? There's a compelling public interest in having a stable mortgage product that will help people responsibly buy homes. And importantly, this government bank made money for the taxpayers because when people are given a fair loan product, they most of the time pay it back. And when it did have to foreclose, because it sometimes uh, did need to foreclose because it was a bank, it would then find other families who could buy the houses and sell them to those families and finance those purchases. So what we had instead during the Obama years was we had big bailouts for the banks, nothing for the regular citizens. And when people would get foreclosed on, the government actually bundled them together 
in bundles of like 1,000 homes and sold them off to private equity people like Barrick. So mm. one of the ways that Tom Barrick gets started as a corporate landlord is he buys 1,000 homes across Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Phoenix at a deep, deep discount directly from the government, which had come into possession of these homes because we were you know, backing up the bad loans. More of my conversation with Aaron Glantz after this. Let's get back to my conversation with Aaron Glantz. Let's back up to Mnuchin for, for a bit. In California, there was an opportunity to, for him to be uh, prosecuted. Not him personally, but uh, his bank. Um, came before Attorney General, uh, then Attorney General Kamala Harris. Her staff recommended that she do something, but, but she did not. You, you address this in the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always thought that Kamala Harris's rise to national prominence was based a little bit on a big lie. Uh, she had risen to prominence as being the public official who was not afraid to take on the banks. And she got this huge speaking slot at the Democratic National Convention in 2012, where she talked about this. Uh, but at the same time she was talking, she set up this mortgage fraud strike force here in California. Yeah, which uh, she got major props for doing. Which she got major props for doing. And they went to work. And one of the first banks they looked at was Steve Mnuchin's because it was a foreclosure machine based in Southern California. And it was getting tremendous subsidies, as, as I mentioned. So uh, her staff ends up putting together a memo. Uh, about 25 pages, and they recommend that Harris prosecute uh, uh, Mnuchin's bank. And they note that not only could this help consumers, but also it could save money for the taxpayers, because if he was breaking the rules on the subsidy agreement with the feds, that money would stop. So uh, so they uh, they present that to her, and she buries the report. And the only reason that you and I are sitting around talking about it now is because when Mnuchin was appointed to be Treasury Secretary, it got leaked to David Dane at The Intercept. Yes. Um, and uh, and I don't think that she has ever really given a reasonable accounting. She gave, well, we, in fact, you footnoted it in your yeah. book, we, our, our story about it, where we asked her point blank about it. And she said, well, the, the case wasn't really there. But according to this memo, it was there. It had a moderate chance of success. I think that's how well, I mean, the, it, but, but the, it was still there. The we, you and I could Monday morning quarterback whether or not she would have been successful, right? right? That would depend on so many forces that beyond sure. our predictive ability. But in the memo, the her own attorneys note that regardless of the outcome of the suit, there would be tremendous public interest value in just the discovery that they would be able to yes. get, yeah. right? That we would be able to learn a lot more about his practices, that he would probably behave better if he was under public scrutiny. And so... And, and so, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, she was making this legal argument to you that uh, that they lack standing because it was a federal bank. Um, other people would disagree with that, including her own staff. Yes. But um, even if she's right, they still could have won a lot by going forward. So and, and as you alluded to earlier, you know, a lot, a lot of the folks, the home records that you describe in the, in the book are have connections to President Trump, but their actions they took was were happened under the obama administration what did the obama administration do to, to try and curb this well i mean the obama administration enabled them right i mean we're talking first of all about the uh, subsidy agreements with steve mnuchin i mean that's by the fdic it's an independent agency but it happened during the obama years with a lot of obama appointees then i'm talking to you about the way that these homes were sold off in bulk after the foreclosure to investors like tom barrick 
right? Um, so, uh, and that was subsidized also by the government. So the Obama years is when real estate is cheap, right? Now we're sitting here, you and I talking now, and most people who are listening are going like, oh my God, real estate is so expensive. It's, it's, it's not affordable. You have to remember, it was only like yesterday that everything was so cheap and we were like, had a glut of foreclosures here in California. And that was the time when, I mean, that's when I bought a house, right? Mm -hmm. If you were lucky enough to be able to get financing, you could actually afford a house. But instead what happened is that we subsidized under Obama all of these uh, speculators and homewreckers. Um, so there were some things that Obama did. You know, we got the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau under Obama, for example, yeah. um, which has gotten rid of some of these really terrible loan products like the Ninja Loans that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. um, of course, now with them in charge under President Trump. You well, know. yeah, let's 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 go to that. Um, so now we uh, the Trump administration is in power. What have they done to erode any of these regulatory protections that Obama uh, put in place? Yeah, I mean, the biggest one is the is the Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed by Congress in 2011. And there's been a, a considerable rollback on that. That was the one that created too big to fail banks, this idea that a bank could be too big to fail because we would have to bail it out. They've raised the threshold on what that would mean. Uh, conveniently so that if Steve Mnuchin wanted to own his bank again, it would no longer be too big to fail, right? Uh, just kind of above the, actually they, they raised it from 50 billion to $250 billion bank. Mm. And this is at about 70 billion when he left. Um, they have, uh, you know, made the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau a shadow of itself. They're weakening the Fair Housing Act, uh, which uh, bans discrimination in lending so that if you're discriminated against by a computer algorithm, uh, it's very difficult to contest. Uh, the biggest way that they're benefiting the home wreckers is probably the tax bill. Um, we all know that the tax bill is a big gift to the super rich in general, uh, but it's an especially big gift to people who own real estate through shell companies, which are the, you in, know, in like, which way is that? Is it, do they, so they get a 20% deduction just off the top. So like you and I, we have jobs, we get make a salary, we pay taxes based on our salary. Uh, if instead we were collecting rental income through an LLC shell company, we could take a 20% deduction right off the top. Uh, and there's lots of other little treats and sweets for real estate interests, uh, which should not really be that surprising because, you know, who owns real estate through more than 300 LLC shell companies is President Trump, right? So it not only benefits Steve Mnuchin and Steve Schwartzman and Wilbur Ross and Tom Barrick, but also Donald Trump himself and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, Fox News host, Sean Hannity. Right, yes, all of that. Is, the point is, a, is a, a major, uh, major owner of uh, these these properties through LLCs. Yeah, he owns like properties through more than eight hundred, eight more than eight hundred seventy properties through a network of LLCs uh, that are all registered in a law office in Georgia. What has been the effect uh, a decade on after the, the crash to communities of color? It's been devastating. I mean, you mentioned in your intro that uh, the home ownership gap between blacks and whites is greater now uh, than uh, it was during the Jim Crow era and that the home ownership rate among African-Americans is lower now than it was during the Jim Crow era. So you have a bank like Steve Mnuchin, uh, the foreclosures on his foreclosure machine were concentrated in communities of color. 70% 
of their foreclosures here in California were in neighborhoods uh, of color. And at the same time, this bank made only three loans to African-Americans and and 11 to Hispanics to help them buy homes. Three is in one, two, three. One, two, three loans to African-American families to help them buy homes. Over over five years. Over five years. And only 11 to Latinos over the same period of time. And remember, this is a bank that is headquartered in Los Angeles, California, like probably the most diverse city in America. Mnuchin is now in charge of regulating every bank in America. Uh, Joseph Otting, who was his top deputy at Mnuchin, his at uh, at One West, his uh, job now is comptroller of the currency, which means he's the nation's top bank regulator. So these home records have basically gone, you know, from directly from wrecking the American dream for everyone, especially communities of color, to making the rules that we all have to live by. As I told you, we're walking in the. To the studio today. Uh, I, this is a tough read. I mean, it's a, a brilliantly reported 